Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. And turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be there in just a moment. And while you're looking that up, let's start with our scripture. Today's our last day for our memory verse for this month, Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. So hopefully you know it by now. Try to like do it without looking at it. We have the cheat sheet up here, but see if you can do it without looking at it. By wisdom, ready to say this out loud with me? By wisdom a house is built, through understanding it is established, through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasure. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Now today we're talking about God's design for those who are single. God's design for singles. If you're single, does your home still need wisdom, understanding, and knowledge? Absolutely, it does. So what is God's wisdom for those who are single? Well, let's find out. Over the years, the church and even the culture have sent a wrong message that being married is somehow better than being single. Our romance movies and novels and so forth sort of sell you this idea that if you're single, you're just not complete. You're not fulfilled, and you have to find love, and then suddenly your life comes together, and it's beautiful. You know that message? I'm not just making that up, right? That's pretty common. Do you know that's a wrong message? Listen, we kind of give this idea that like, if you're single for too long, there's a problem with you. Well, there's a problem with that. (laughs) That's wrong. In the Bible, uh, marriage and singlehood are treated equally. In fact, studies even show that in some ways, single people are better off than married people. You know that single people are, this is, I drew, drew these from Psychology Today magazine, for whatever that's worth, but single people are more likely to care for their aging parents. They're more likely to develop a larger network of more committed friendships. Uh, Single people are more likely to support their friends if their friends are in a long-term illness, like more than three months. Single people score higher on tests measuring autonomy and self-determination. There are more unmarried people right now in the United States over the age of 18 than ever before, 110.6 million people. Research says that 25% of today's young adults will reach their mid-40s before getting married, if they get married. All that to say, singlehood is common, and I want you to hear it today, being single is just fine. That being, you can be fulfilled and single Being married doesn't mean you're fulfilled. Being single doesn't mean you're unfulfilled. Let's just say it right up front. Biblically speaking, marriage and singleness are treated equally. Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. So, a favorable statement about marriage. 
However, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, we'll read this in a moment, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So, a positive statement about being single. In addition to this, you have some of our favorite Bible characters in the Bible were single. Think about it. Daniel, no record of him being married. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same thing. You know the guys, the lion's den guys, the fiery furnace guys, the heroes, those guys, single. Uh, the apostle Paul, we're going to look at, single. Most of the 12 disciples, single. In fact, Jesus, the greatest person of all, single. So Jesus, the, I mean, clearly, some of our favorite heroes in the Bible spent their whole lives without getting married. My point is simply this. It's wrong to communicate that marriage is somehow superior to being single, and it's safe to conclude that whether you're married or you're single, God has a special plan for your life. Single people, hear me clearly. Your life is not on hold waiting until you find love and you can really start to live. Now, I want to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because this is our text. It stands out as probably the premier passage in the whole Bible that would deal with this subject. So it's wise to take a look at it. But for the sake of time, um, we're going to do something. We're going to skim the first half and then we'll start in verse 25 and read the second half. Does that make sense? So here's our plan. Um, the whole chapter deals with this, but it's like 50 verses long. So we'll skim the first half, read the second half, but I think you'll, I think you'll get a flavor for what it's saying as we go through it. So it starts with verse 1. Verse 1 says this. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the Corinthian Christians, and he says this. Now, for the matters you wrote about... Stop right there. So in other words, Paul's answering something specific, isn't he? See, a lot of scholars think that what we call 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and what we call 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. That the Apostle Paul is responding, he wrote a letter that we don't have anymore, and the, and the Corinthians responded back with a letter. They had this little correspondence going on. And so here's Paul, he's, they, he's writing back to them, and he says, oh, here's some of the questions you guys had. And he goes to answer some of these questions, see. And it, we don't know what the questions are exactly because they're not in the text, but you can look at the answer. And by the answer, you can guess what the questions were. Does that make sense? And so by looking at the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can surmise that the Corinthians had two questions. Their first question was this. Should a Christian divorce their spouse if their spouse refuses to also become a Christian? And then the second question that they probably asked was, should we even get married at all? So to really understand the challenges that were facing the Corinthian church and why they would even ask these two questions, I think it's important to understand how ancient families worked and then what was going on. So in this, back in the ancient world, see, we view in the West, we view marriage as being the center of a home, and we say that we get married because we view marriage as a source of love and romance. Like, we think of love, romance, the center of the home, but you understand that, that in the ancient world, 
those didn't factor in. You would be very shocked to find that out, right? You think, how could that be? They didn't get married for love? No, they didn't get married for love. They got married for other reasons. In fact, there were three main reasons why they got married in the ancient world. The first one was to build up a family line. And the second reason was to maintain property, land, from one generation to the next. And you can see how those first two go together. The stronger your family line, the more secure your land is. And the more secure your land is, the more secure your family is. And then the third reason why they got married was to strengthen, to unite family units, which strengthen society overall. If my daughter married your son, now our two families have become one. So that strengthens our community overall in our society. You see that? So this is why they got married. And now the teachings of Jesus. Jesus comes along, and his teachings disrupted that. Jesus said things like this in Mark chapter 3, verse 32 and 35. Jesus is teaching in a house, and his mom and his brothers, they come to get him and take him back home, and they say, hey, Jesus, your mom's outside. And Jesus responds with, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? And at that point, I think if I'm Mary, I'd be like, let me get my hands on that snot, right? <laughs> who are my mother and brothers and sisters? And then Jesus says, and whoever does the will of God is my brother and sisters and mother. And Jesus made several other statements like that that were kind of anti-family almost. And Jesus is saying, what he's saying is our spiritual bond that we have with our family, our spiritual family, it's actually stronger than our biological family bond. Now, the early church took this to heart. I mean, they practiced an extreme like family bonding structure in the early church. Acts chapter 2, we see them selling their houses and their properties and bringing the money and giving all of it to the apostles, to the church, to care for the poor among them. Now, remember why they got married? Do you see how countercultural that is? You, you, you understand? See, like we think, oh, they sold a vacation home and they gave the extra money to the church, and that's a really great idea. Oh, no. Some of these, when the Bible says they're selling land and property, they're selling their family security, future security. They're, they're selling something that had been in their family for generations. You see what they're doing? But yet their commitment to their church family was that strong. Okay? In fact, this is why the Roman government was actually persecuting the first Christians. They persecuted Christians. You know why they killed us? For three reasons. They killed us for three reasons. They accused us of cannibalism because we had these weird meals where we ate the body and drank the blood of this guy, Jesus Christ. And they also accused us of atheism because we didn't worship the emperor. And the imperial cult was huge in the first century in the Roman world. And, of course, Christians didn't worship Caesar as God we worship God as God. And not only that, your God's invisible. Like We can't even see your God. You don't have a God. Where's your God at? And so the Romans accused Christians, ironically, of atheism. And the third thing that they accused us of was incest. Because we're running around calling each other brother and sister. We got married, husbands and wives, calling each other 
brother and sister. And the Romans were like, that's just gross, man. Even for them, by their standards, it was gross. And so they were killing Christians because of that. Now, that's the background. That's the context. Now you come to the church in Corinth, and you've got these people. They're Greeks, and they're coming to know Jesus as their Savior. And before they were Christ followers, they engaged in cultic pagan practices. And they start becoming, becoming followers of Jesus. Now, some of you can relate to this, not, not pagan practices, but you can relate to this. Like, you're a married couple, and maybe one of you came to know Jesus before the other one did. And, and, and then do you remember that time between where there's maybe some conflict, a little tension in the home over your desire to follow Christ, but your spouse doesn't have the same desire, the same thing? Well, now you can imagine and maybe empathize a little bit with these first these Christians in Corinth, because when we say that they were coming out of a pagan background, I'm not talking about like, you know, a few beers in a football game on Friday night. Like, we're talking about cultic pagan practices where in their worship of their pagan gods, they engaged in some very gross immorality. So you can imagine the kind of conflict that might happen in a home with a husband and a wife if one of them became a Christian and the other one was not yet a Christian. And on top of that, the one who became a Christian is now more tightly connected to their church family than they are their own blood family. And now there's conflict. And now there's a question. If I've become a Christian and my spouse has not become a Christian and I have such a great church family, maybe I should just divorce my spouse. See the question? And now Paul begins to address that question. And as mentioned earlier, persecution of Christians is beginning to uh, ramp up in the Roman Empire. And so the issue facing a lot of these Christ followers was, you know, times are really tough. Jesus is coming back any day now. I mean, maybe we ought to just not bother with the whole marriage and family thing because that's a lot of pressure. So let's just... So this is the other question that they're grappling with. And Paul begins to answer these questions. We go to verse 4. And Paul starts and he lays down his first principle here. And it says this, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So not just my heart belongs to my wife, but my body does as well. I'm hers, she's mine. Now this bothers a lot of people these days, because we like to think it's my body. It's my choice. I get to do with whatever I want with my body. But if you're married, not so. You belong to your spouse. In fact, if you're single, I would say it's not your body either. I can argue that as well from Scripture. But our bodies belong to one another. We must make decisions together. See, I seek to give my wife my best. I give her my best spiritually. I give her my best mentally, emotionally, physically. I'm all hers, right? So here's Paul's first point. To those who are thinking about divorce, it's this. You belong to your spouse, you must make decisions as a unit, as one. You're bound to one another. And this limits you in what you can do. And that leads us, see, then to Paul's statement in verse 7. So Paul's making this point. You're married. You are bound to one another. 
And you can't just cut bait and run. That's not an option if you're married. And so Paul comes to verse 7 and he says this, I really wish that all of you were as I am, which means single. Because single guys are free. Paul's like, you know, if I wanted to do something, if I wanted to make a choice to follow the Lord in a certain way, I can just do it. I don't have to ask my wife. This is Paul's thinking because he's single. And then Paul does something in this text that's really kind of interesting, and I, I think it's cool. Paul differentiates between his opinion and the Word of God. We come to verse 10, and Paul says, So to the married, I give this command. And you notice the parentheses? Not I, but the Lord. So Paul's like, hey, listen, this is coming right from God here. And he quotes Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And basically his message is this, if you're married, stay married. Bottom line. And then he comes to verse 12. To the rest, I say this, and look at the parentheses. I, not the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The Apostle Paul is like, now let me just give you my thoughts on this matter. And the reason is this, because I don't think Paul had a solid Bible verse. You know, like we think that Paul like made stuff up. He didn't. He's using what we would call the Old Testament as his foundation. He's using the teachings of Jesus as his foundation. But Paul can't think of any teaching of Jesus, and he can't think of any Old Testament Bible verse to say what he's about to say. So he goes, I'm saying this. This is my thought on this. And he says, basically, if you're a Christian and you're married to someone who's not yet saved, well, then you're to stay married and pray that they get saved. Not bad advice. And then he says that, you know, and Paul says that this is coming from him. It's not coming directly from the Lord. This is kind of my, this is my wisdom on this matter, Paul would say. And then he comes to verse 17, and verse 17 holds the key concept. It's the hinge for the whole chapter. So can we read this out loud so that you can remember it, okay? Just to help, you know, teaching, kind of drive it in. Verse 17 says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God called them. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Whatever situation you're in, are you married? Live as a believer. What does, what does it look like for you if you're married to live as a believer in that situation? Are you single? Live as a believer. Are you widowed? Are you divorced? Because they're single, but yet we know that that's a different set of circumstances. Are you widowed? Are you divorced? Live as a believer, Paul would say. See, whatever the situation is that the Lord has assigned you, the goal is the same. Live as a believer in that situation. Listen, your character is more important than your circumstance. In essence, that's what Paul's saying. And God's interested in your character. And that circumstance is an opportunity for your character to be developed, he would say. This is so important that he repeats it in verse 24. Look at verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. It's different wording, same basic point. Paul answers that first question pretty clearly, doesn't he? So here's the question. If I'm a Christian, but my spouse refuses to become a Christian, should I divorce them? 
And the answer is no. That's his answer. I'm glad you got that. That's the answer. No. He says, live as a believer in that situation. And now he begins to get into a second question. Should we even bother getting married at all? Given the fact that times are so tough, given the fact that once you're married, you are bound, you're in this, should we get married at all? Let's get into chapter 7, verse 25. Start reading right there. He goes, now, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Stop right there for a second. What are we about to get? Paul's opinion or the word of the Lord? Well, you're getting the word of the Lord because it's in our Bible now. All right, so yeah, this is the word of the Lord. But the Apostle Paul is doing what? It's another one of those, I'm given a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I have no command from the Lord. You see that? So I, I can't give you a quote and verse where this is coming from, Paul says. But I got a little bit of wisdom. I mean, after all, he is an apostle, so he's speaking with apostolic authority. And so he brings that to bear as well. But he wants you to know this is his wisdom coming through. And I love this because you're about to see Paul the single guy. Paul the single guy is going to come out in a few spots here, which is kind of fun. And then he says this term virgins, virgins actually can apply both to men and women, just for the record. So he's speaking to anybody who's unmarried, to the singles. Verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Okay, right there, married guys, you can't say anything. There's no amens from married people right there. Right? I just want, you know, if you're married, you're going to face a lot of troubles, and I want to spare you. None of you guys should be going, amen. No, this is, but this is where the single people can go, Amen. You're not kidding. Woo. And the Apostle Paul saying that as well. He's like, as a single guy, I'm telling you, I just want to spare you all the trouble. Right? He goes on. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Can, does anybody else think that, chat, that, that paragraph is weird? Is he really saying that if I have a wife, I should live like I don't have a wife? Is he really saying that if I'm happy, I should act like I'm not happy? Like, is that really what he's saying? Because that's what the words say. <laughs> Right? So here we go. Look at one of the first rules of understanding the Bible is the context. Context, context, context. What's the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Remember verse 17? Remember the key verse that whatever situation you're in, live like a believer. Remember that? That's the principle that underlies the whole thing. 
And so what's Paul saying? Is he saying, if you're happy, don't act like it? If you're married, don't act like it? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, whatever situation you're in, live like a believer in that situation. His point is, be content. Be content where you are. Are you single? Be content with singleness. Are you married? Be content in your marriage. Like, be content. That's his point. We come, we keep on reading. Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. I like that phrase, don't you? Undivided devotion to the Lord. Like, there's something in that phrase that resonates in my heart. Does it in you? That's how I want to live. I want to live with undivided devotion to the Lord. You see what he's saying? Are you single? What does it mean to live with undivided devotion to the Lord as a single person? It's, it's the same principle as verse 17. He repeats it a few times. It underlies the whole chapter. Are you single? Undivided devotion. Are you married? What does it look like to live with undivided devotion to the Lord as a married person? This is his question. This is his point. Let's keep reading. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, well, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry does better. There's a single guy coming through again. Verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. Again, a single guy coming through. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. So, so you see what he's saying? Single people, you have got a big-time advocate in the Apostle Paul. I mean, you've got an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to your station in life. And the Apostle Paul is clearly biased towards single people. Is he not? I mean, clearly. It's obvious. Right? Paul's big, his big meta-argument here is that given the current crisis of persecution and with all the trouble in the world and stuff, it's especially important to spend our time and to spend our energy wisely. So how do you spend your time and your energy? That's what he's saying. See, married people, we have to spend a large portion of our time and energy caring for our spouse, caring for our children. That's the nature of marriage. 
Single people have a lot more flexibility. Paul's arguing that the energy and the time of married people is divided, but the energy and the time of a single person can be much more focused on the things of God. Man, run after it with everything you've got. But then he tries to balance it by saying, but if you're married, that's not a sin either. He's, he's trying to walk that thin line, if you will, between the two. So single people, we have this entire chapter devoted to you. And the Apostle Paul identifying himself as a single man and proud of it says, here, I got a couple of pieces of wisdom for you. So we can sum up 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with these two statements. The first one is this, be content. Be content with where you are. Look what he says. Let's just review it real quick. Verse 17, each person live as a believer in whatever situation you're in. Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when the Lord called them. Verse 26, it's good for a man to remain as he is. Verse 40, speaking about the widow, he says she is happier if she stays single. She stays as she is. So what's he saying? He's saying, can you be content? Can you be content with where you are? Single person, can you be content single? Everything in our culture wants you to not be content single. It wants you to think that you're missing something if you're not married. That if you're, if you're the older you get and the longer you stay single, that there must be something wrong with you. Must be something broken with you because you haven't found love yet. That's a lie. You can be content where you are. In fact, there's a lot of wisdom there. One of the tactics of the devil is to create dissatisfaction in your heart, discontentment in your heart. Because if he does, he can rob you of your peace and he can also set you up for making bad decisions. A lot of bad decisions are made out of discontentment. I've seen more than one over my 32 years of ministry. I've seen more than one lovely Christian woman marry the complete wrong guy because she was desperate to get married. Listen, marriage is such a huge commitment, as Paul would say. It's such a huge covenant, right? that you, you definitely don't want to go into marriage because you're unhappy single. Discontentment with singlehood is not a reason to get married. So cultivate contentment. And I would encourage you that if you're struggling, if you can't, if you're like, yeah, but I, if you're struggling in this area, I would encourage you to talk to your life group about it. Find a counselor, talk about it. Let's, let's figure out what the root of that discontentment is. Let's get you content with where you are so that that will actually position you to make better choices and wiser choices when the time comes. So that's the first message, really, that he gives to us is, is be content where you are in the situation that the Lord's given to you, whatever that is, be content in that situation. And the second 
principle that he would give to us here is this. Be committed to the Lord. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Undivided devotion to the Lord. Be committed to the Lord. Live as a believer, verse 17 says. Live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord's put you in. Be committed to him in that situation. See, it's important to realize that God's goal for all of us, whether you're married or single, God's goal is to make us like Jesus. He wants us to be holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it tells us it is God's will. You see that? That's black and white. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. You know, it's been said that God's goal for marriage, this is not mine, I heard this a long time ago, God's goal for marriage is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. But the same could be said for singlehood. God's goal for singlehood is not that you be just happy, but that you be holy. So the question is how? How do I be holy as a single person? That's the question. How, you know, how do I live as a believer in this situation as a single person? How does being single make me more like Jesus? Well, I can tell you this, holiness, becoming like Jesus, there's no easy way to do it. The only way to do it is to die to yourself. That's, that's the pathway to holiness, is dying to myself, right? That's, that's it. There's no shortcuts. Dying to myself is the key to holiness, now, in marriage, I die to myself as I give myself to serve my wife. As I seek to meet her needs before my own, I'm dying to myself, right? This is how holiness is formed in a married person. You go, well, boy, well, you're married and you love her. That should be easy. Can I tell you? It's not. You know, and, and I am married to one of the sweetest people in the world, I mean, she's a lovely, sweet person. But can I tell you that I don't always want to serve her? It's not a reflection on her. That's a reflection on me. See, that's me. Why? Because I'm selfish. Because I, I have not learned to die to myself all the time, you know? And, and this is part of the journey for all of us, as we become more like Christ, we die to ourselves. And as a husband, I learned to die to myself as I serve my wife and give and I yield to her needs before my own. That's how it happens in marriage. But as a single person, how do you die to yourself? Oh, I think there's plenty of ways a single person can die to themselves in order to be holy, in order that Christ would be formed in you as a single person. I think giving your time away in service to the Lord and to others. Like Paul, Paul certainly is talking about that. Man, you can just devote yourself 110% to the service of the Lord, you know? He's calling you to Zimbabwe, go. Nobody's holding you back. He's calling you to sell all your stuff and give it to the Do it. You, know, you don't have to answer to anybody else. You, you're free to go, right? He's calling you to do some kind of radical, go for it. You can, I mean, you can run like the wind. Bullseye, whatever. Right? That's not a quote from, uh, from a Toy Story. There we are. Run like the wind. You can run like the wind there, single person. You've, you've got it, right? 
Serve the Lord with everything you have. You can be fully devoted to that. Um, that's one way to die to yourself because the temptation is certainly to not do that, isn't it? The temptation is to hold back, to become insular, and to just be me, and uh, to me do me and you do you and all that stuff. And, we're just... and, and the Lord would say, no, don't do that. Give yourself away in service to others in the name of Jesus. The second thing I can think of is this. Every time, you know, you die to yourself, every time you resist the temptation to follow our culture into sexual dysfunction and perversion, and you fight to maintain your purity before God, you die to yourself. Every time you choose purity over promiscuity, you're dying to your flesh, dying to yourself. You're choosing holiness like this is a good thing. And you say, but man, that's so hard. Yes, it is. Dying to self is hard. <laughs> that's the point. And that's one way as a single person that holiness might be formed in you as you resist those temptations and choose Christ instead. Does this make sense? See, this is God's heart for us, whether we're married or single. Be holy. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 gives us purpose in being single. You're not just waiting to find love. You're not just waiting for the magic moment before your life is fulfilled. No, your life is fulfilled right now in Christ. Right now. You can be content. You can pursue Him with everything you've got. You can use your freedom as a single person to serve Christ in crazy radical ways. You can be single for the kingdom. Here, I like this. Our I was talking to Zoe Flynn. She's one of our young ladies here in our church and dynamic, lovely Christian young woman, single. And she said this, you can be single for the kingdom and the character that has grown in singleness can carry right into marriage. The character that has grown in singleness can be carried right into marriage. If the Lord grants that to you, right? Or if he doesn't, then you're still developing holiness and Christ-like character, and that's a good thing. Either way, it's a win. Remember something, friends. God's will is that you be holy, not that you be married. Hear this carefully. God's greatest plan for your life is not that you get married, but that you be like Christ. That's his greatest plan for your life. Marriage is a blessing, and I think Paul would say that, right? You do this kind of dance. Say, I feel like I'm doing the same dance Paul's doing. But it's not bad to get married. But <laughs> just remember, marriage isn't the end all. It's not. God's greatest plan for your life is that you be like Christ. I want to just uh, close this morning. And, and, and you have the Apostle Paul as your quintessential example of single guy to follow in his footsteps. I'd like to close this morning just with a quick list of uh, do's and don'ts for the married people. As I've talked with a few singles, I, I was given do's and don'ts, and I thought this was helpful. And these have come out of those conversations. But three things that you don't want to do and three things you do want to do. You, you don't, in the worship team, you can get ready if you want to. Uh, don't try to get single people married. I know that's a temptation to try to, you know, set them up don't. Um, they often don't appreciate the setups. 
They can smell them a mile away. Second is uh, don't say stupid stuff. Okay. Our world says a lot of stupid stuff. Don't say things like, you know, you're going to make some guy a lucky guy someday. You don't need to do that. We don't, they don't need that. They, they don't need you saying like, oh, you'll know when you'll know. It'll just happen. It, they, they don't need your dumb Oprah regurgitation advice for their dating life, something you read in Cosmo magazine. They don't need you giving that to them, right? Um, maybe you should lower your standards. Somebody told our son that. I wanted to smack him. Now, my son's married now, so, you know, he, and, he, and she's, Caitlin is a lovely, wonderful Christian woman. But back when he was single, somebody actually told my son, you, maybe you should lower your standards. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing ever. You're about to make the most important decision of your life. Lowering your standards is not what you want to do, right? Oh, yeah, shoot for mediocre. You'll be happy. Like, no, you don't want that. Oh, yeah, yeah. My point is, don't say stupid stuff. It's better to not say anything at all. And the third thing is, don't, don't treat them with pity. Single people don't need pity. And I hope you've not heard that this morning. I hope you hear it this morning. I, the, can I tell you, the Lord has convicted me. I, I, this, this message has really been, uh, it's changed the way that I'm seeing things. I'll be honest. Uh, you know, because I, um, I don't know that I've ever intentionally treated single people with pity. Like, that's not been my, you know, I don't wake up trying to do that. But I, I think that I certainly have communicated that at times. And I certainly have, certainly have thought that if you're, if you're unmarried for a long time that, you know, well, I wonder when you're going to get married. And I, I don't think that's right to do. Um, married people uh, and single people are equal in the kingdom of God. It's just the way that it is. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, we need to welcome, if you're married, you need to welcome singles into your home. I was told that. They love that. Welcome them into your home. Have dinner. Share the family. Share the home with them, right? Second thing is we need to do a better job at connecting singles um, in ministry. Uh, we do. I, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't understand why, and I would be curious to know single people. I would love to hear your feedback on it. But why is it that, that single people tend to at least in our church experience anyway, haven't been as involved as marrieds. And I wonder if there's something that I'm communicating or that we're communicating that's like not cool, that makes that happen. I don't want to do that because we're in this together, whether married or single, and we need to do a better job at connecting singles in ministry in service to the Lord because um, we're the same. And then one last piece, it kind of disconnected, and that's this. Scripture's pretty clear. Older women are to disciple younger women, and older men are to disciple younger men. And that's part of how God has designed things to work. And I think given the nature of the family and the home these days, as torn apart as it is, if there's one thing that the Church of Jesus can do um, really well, it's this. 
you know, older men, you need to get some younger guys around you and you need to teach them what it is to be a gentleman. You need to teach them how to treat a lady properly. And, and older women, you need to get some younger women around you and you need to teach them how to be a woman of grace, a woman of God, how to, how to be that, that embodiment of wisdom that we talked about last Sunday. You can teach them that, older ladies. It's, it's just a, it's a principle. It's out of 2 Timothy. It's a principle that's all through Scripture, really. And so if there's one thing that we could do, we could do that for sure. Um, I would encourage you, if you're an older man or older woman, I would encourage you to begin to pray and seek out someone younger that you could bring under your wing. And, you know, there's no magic in it. Just start hanging out. Just, like, really, just start hanging out. Um, and we rub off on each other that way. So let's pray, okay? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.